this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses the penultimate Fish album, A Feast of Consequences. Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran and Paul Zotter, and at least for the first part, Ken Gregory, as we talk about the as-yet penultimate Fish solo album, A Feast of Consequences. Unless he comes out of retirement, that's like why Motley Crue and Kiss... That's why I said as yet. I'm not sure I, I believe him that Belchmertz is the end, but we'll see. Mucho, Thomas, my friend, welcome back to the fold. You have been out in the wonderful world of movie recording and traveling the globe while we have been here at the Palaver slogging through the fish catalog and uncovering untold gems that we hadn't fully anticipated. But now you're back specifically to join us for A Feast of Consequences. So, welcome back, my friend. Thank you. It's good to be back, and it is great to be here, for uh, especially for this album. This is wonderful. Joe, I think from this point forward, when you introduce uh, Tom as joining the podcast, you should refer to him as the Emmy-nominated Tom oh, Corcoran. My apologies. <laughs> you are... That is correct. My my apologies, Tom. Yes. I will I will make sure in the future to do a much better job of listing your very impressive credentials. <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah, you're a documentary composer. Wow. Well, thank you, gentlemen. This is quite the unexpected plug. Uh, yes, I am a, a film composer, not just for documentaries, but who's counting? And I compose music for a, a feature documentary called Path of the Deaf that was nominated for a Emmy last year for Best Score. Uh, it was quite exciting. And hopefully it will be on uh, streaming services in the next uh, couple months. Uh, I will let you know, but thank you so much. Hence, Emmy-nominated Tom Corcoran. Um, entirely accurate, yes. And he <laughs> still hasn't become so bloviated that it's doing the laundry is not uh, beyond him. I can. I, oh, like you his, see the laundry in the back. His, yeah, la- his laundry is in the back of the studio. Well, yeah. I, I hope I hope you did take our advice and started tripling your rates, though, Tom. Of course, of course, <laughs> the rates went up. Yes, Tom, that's a great hat you're wearing, and I just have to point out that Tom is wearing a Star Trek shirt, and I'm wearing a Star Wars shirt tonight. That is quite awesome, actually. Let our geek flags fly. All right, so. In the interest of of getting this moving along, Ken has <laughs> has consented to join us for the first part of this discussion so that he can play his normal role of providing us the timeline of progressive rock between 13th Star and A Feast of Consequences. And then he has other obligations, so we'll let him go. And in that vein, then, Ken, if you would like to perhaps walk us through the intervening, what was it, six, seven years between these two records? Indeed. So much happened. A Feast of Consequences was released in 2013, but the prior album released September 2007. So uh, during the six years between these albums, so many things happened. Back, back there in, in the 2007, 2008 
era, would you believe that John Anderson was fired from Yes? It, it still boggles the mind. It still boggles the mind, yes. Not to belabor that, but he was fired after Magnification, which, you know, is a stellar album. Stellar, stellar album, yes. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, Yeah, I mean. There were were health issues involved, though, I believe, yes? Yeah, but, I mean, what proper American employer doesn't fire the sick person? So, I mean, I don't know. Well, but that that became, yes, M.O., because, you know, good friend Benoit David also got fired for health reasons. Quite possibly, yes. Well, yeah, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, So I'm not going to read to you everything that happened from 2007 and 8 to 13, but just keep in mind that um, Fish is, uh, I think he's touring, but he's not actively putting out new albums. The 2010 era is, is so interesting Genesis in 2010 was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Fish. And that's not this Fish, it's Trey Anastasio and, and, and friends. So, so our heroes are not only old, but they're being inducted into the Hall of Fame at this point. That 2013 year was actually surprisingly amazing for melodic pop songs. And I'm not a fan of conventional pop, but but who can get these melodies out of their head? Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus, uh, Royals by Lord, Pompeii by Bastille. It was a very interesting time. Even that controversial song Blurred Lines by Pharrell Williams mm. was also 2013. And um, the one that is going to be the absolute worst earworm for me in the list is Happy by Pharrell Williams. <laughs> So, you know, with all that going on, Fish decides that he's going to release a new album. Uh, we definitely had, oh, God, the usual neo-prog, advanced prog, uh, what, do, what do we call it? Um, traditional prog, the noty stuff. But you definitely get your, uh, your, your, your fair shake of uh, Cambria Haken porcupine tree, Spock's beard, glass hammer opeth, that kind of stuff, you know, keeping you going through this era. It was Stephen Wilson. And can I I just, I just wanted like, I hate to interrupt you, but when you say Stephen Wilson, 2013 was the year he released the Raven that refused to sing. I think that's important to note just because that album's fairly epic amongst his early collections. Oh yeah. It's fairly oh, epic yeah. amongst anything. Correct. <laughs> In 2012, we had uh, Mars Volta, Flying Colors, Thank You Scientist, Rush, Clockwork Angels, Flower Kings, Echo Lynn, Self-Titled, Vandergraaff Generator, um, even Saga is active. It's a really interesting time. It, it's, it's like Prague dies, a big, big train keeping us going. And we, we always kind of find ourselves with the uh, Marillion fish face-off. So what do you like better, a piece of consequences or sounds that can't be made? Wow. That is not a choice I would like to make. I know. It's a tough one. And so I, I, I'm going to disappear, but guys, I really I enjoy that. 
Oh, no. <laughs> well, uh, oh, no. Go ahead, go ahead. I really, I really enjoyed listening to this. I, you know, I talk about Fish getting comfortable working with other musicians, and I get talk about Fish getting comfortable with technology, and I talk about Fish finally doing what's right and developing a song and not just settling for, you know, repeating the same things over and over again. And I feel, feel like he's getting it. I mean... He's clearly got it. He, he, he must be stable in his art and, and stable in his finances and, and, and taking hold of the dream because I think he did a, a pretty damn good job with this one. Well, and I think we'll get into it, but, um, you know, a lot of the creative motivation for Feast of Consequences is very solid. Are you referring to his dive into World War One history or yes. are you talking about? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Well, Ken, we really do appreciate you dialing in for the first part of this episode and walking us through that very interesting timeline. And um, we'll take it from here and wish you all the best, my friend. Kenny G. We'll catch you next time. And yeah. a quick a quick shout out. Uh, brilliant work from the usual cast of characters, Robin Bolt, Steve Vances, B- Foss Patterson. Uh, I'll let you guys take it from there. Rock and roll. Cool. Take care, Ken. Sweet. All right. So the particulars, as Ken mentioned, A Feast of Consequences was released in September of 2013. Joe. Yes. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. Either I zoned out for part of that, or I just think that Ken missed a couple of, of albums that are of pretty heavy consequence to some of us in 2013. So Dimensionaut came out in 2013. Oh, my God. Big, Big Trains Electric, uh, English Electric Part 2 came out. Uh, Life Signs released their their self-titled. Leprous released uh, Cole. There, did Queensryche release a self-titled album in this? Did They did. They did indeed. Oh, that was that their first singer with Todd Latore? Yes, it was. A pretty good album, actually. Okay. And Blackfield released Four, which... Gosh, it just seems like that was yesterday. Sorry, I just wanted to toss that out. No, no, thanks. I think the, any excuse to mention Dimension Aunt is yeah. fine with me. I think it's like a three-week trend of, that we've been able to keep up now. So, Well, we'll have to uh, see how long we can keep that going. <laughs> so moving then into the particulars, as mentioned, A Feast of Consequences was released in September of 2013, released on the Chocolate Frog Record Company label, and produced by Callum Malcolm. The personnel, as Ken alluded to, are Fish on vocal and lyrics, Robin Bolt returns on guitar, Steve Vances is back on bass guitar, Foss Patterson on keyboards, Gavin Griffiths on drums, and Elizabeth Troy Antwi on backing vocals, no one else is credited in the wikis, but it sounds like at some point there are other things going on. Could just be keyboards, I'm not sure. The track listing, the album opens up with Perfume River, goes into All Loved Up, Blind to the Beautiful, A Feast of Consequences, and then the Highwood Suite, consisting of Highwood, Crucifix Corner, The Gathering, Thistle Alley, and The Leaving. And the album then finishes up with The Other Side of Me and The Great Unraveling. The wikis do point out and provide the track listing for the vinyl edition, which is interesting because it's one side live. So he actually, uh, side four apparently has 
live versions of Perfume River, Feast of Consequences, and Blind to the Beautiful. The wiki page on this record is exceptionally disappointing in the fact that there's nothing here. So the the blurb is, A Feast of Consequences is an album by Fish. It is his 10th solo studio album since he left Marillion in 1988 and the first since 13 Star. It was released on Fish's own imprint, Chocolate Frog Record Company. That's it. There's no lore in the wikis about this record. It's very, very sad. However, Fish himself does provide us some context on his website. Mm. So here is the, the blurb on A Feast of Consequences from Fish's own website. I ended up in the Somme almost by accident as I was at a loss on what to do on my birthday. A good friend of mine, Simon Mostyn, a World War I battlefield guide, suggested I visit as I was in Paris after a Fish Heads Club gig and had a couple of days to spare before the, the next one in the UK. I traveled to Beaumont Hamel and actually woke up on my birthday in a bed and breakfast place built on what was, quote, no man's land, end quote. It later turned out that I had been sleeping just a few hundred meters away from where my maternal granddad, William Patterson, had built trenches while serving with the 8th Battalion Royal Scots back in 1916. I also discovered I was staying on the night of my birthday in Arras, where my paternal granddad had been stationed as RFC ground crew at the same time. Needless to say, it was a coincidence of extraordinary proportions. During my trip, I visited the Highwood, a scene of desperate battles over a three-month period the same year. For some reason, it had a profound effect on me, and when I discovered weeks later that William Patterson had fought there and helped dig a trench system called Thistle Alley, I knew I had to write about it. Wow. Thank you, Fish. Appreciate that. Wow. Tom, you, you know, literally, we have arranged our recording schedule because you were available. We held on to this record because you specifically wanted to talk about it. And I, you know, it's one of those things I, up until fairly recently, I was not necessarily looking forward to having this conversation with you because I was not feeling the same level of love that you were clearly projecting. And, mm. but as I often do, I stuck with it. And, and quite frankly, it was when I went to the fish website and found that sort of that impetus that the tumbler started to fall into place for me. And suddenly, you know, that Highwood suite became much more immediate, had more impact. Um, and, and I started to get it now, you know, I think this record is, it's listed as being 66 minutes and 56 seconds. I still think it's probably about 10 to 15 minutes too long, but I think it's pretty obvious where some edits would come in if you had to do such a thing. But overall, I really have come around to, to your way of thinking. I see, understand, and appreciate the power of this record. And I also think, you know, I don't know how you normally experience it, Tom, but I did find that the more time I spent with it in headphones, the 
the better it became for me. So there's that. It is a, a beautiful sounding record. So I, I have a, a couple things I wanted to start off with. First off, I find it very interesting going back to the wikis. Um, as little as the wikis have for this album, if you actually go to the vinyl edition song order, the song order is different. And what I have come to learn, and we've talked a little bit about this on our uh, text thread, we'll talk about all loved up in, in, in detail when the, <laughs> in the appropriate time. But really quick, um, as opposed, uh, really, that, that song is really on the wrong album. But if you really take it a step further, it is in the wrong place on, on the CD. And it sort of really gets you in a, a different place early on, and, and it, it's hard to sort of get back. And the the vinyl edition, all of that is at the end. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but um, I do find it interesting that it is in a different place. So I, I just wanted to bring that up. It, it's really not a big deal. I, but it is it, it is fascinating, and mm-hmm. and I think – once we get into the, the the tracks, we'll talk about the impact of All Loved Up. Absolutely. What I, I, I want to say real quick, and I know I was not with you guys for the past couple Fish episodes. I just want to say that what a relief it is that his last three albums were, I think, three of his best. And I, I don't know what you guys think, but I think it's a relief for me. How many times have we talked about bands it seems like they, they fizzle out at the end. They said everything that they could say, and they're just sort of done. And they're just sort of doing it to sort of pay the bills or for whatever. I feel really good that these last three albums, if this is the end of Fish's career as an artist, this is the way to go. And certainly this album, Feast of Consequences, has turned out to be my favorite fish job. So I'm, I'm really glad to be talking about this because this, this album really does mean a lot to me. One quick thing I, I wanted to also say, Joe, when, when you and I were, were going over Suits, mm-hmm. uh, I often brought up Feast of Consequences probably more than I actually brought up Suits. Uh, and I, I almost even found that odd at the time. But now that we're talking about Feast of Consequences, and now I'm just going to talk about suits. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm going to, I, I do want to bring up a couple of things that I, I, I brought up in suits because they are very relevant now to Feast of Consequences. One of those things is the subject matter on this album is, is very dark. Uh, we're talking about atrocities that happen, war, very depressing things. And I think Fish nails it. This is the tone that it, it needs to be, it's artistic. Everything about it is just sublime. Really quick, one of the problems now that I have with Suits, and this is something that we sort of, you, you sort of come up with in you know hindsight, is that there are some dark subject matters in Suits. And the songs themselves are kind of bouncy. And there is a little bit of a, push and pull dichotomy where it's sort of interesting that the songs are bouncy and they're, they're very dark, but it didn't quite go over too well. Um, it's hit or miss on that album. And I, I remember saying in the, in, in the episode 
that you know Fish really nails this subject matter in the later albums, particularly in Feast of Consequences. And when I listen to this album, it, it just reaffirms that. And I, 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 I think that there is a tone, overall tone, that he just finally figured out as, as an artist. And, 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 th- and this album really, really nails it. Tom, it's, it's, I'm glad that you brought up the, the dark subject matter now and, and the tone of, of the record. So I'm a huge fan of this album. I, I might, when we debate our ranked, you know, our top ranked fish albums, when we force rank the fish albums later, uh, we might debate, you know, the last, uh, you know, the last in the collection for me personally, you know, 13 stars is much better than field of crows, but I feel like a feast of consequences is, you know, is, is fish getting back on track with his expression and, and, and what he, he delivers musically altogether. But what's weird about Feast of Consequences for me is while, with the exception of track two, I can't really find very much to complain about or to like say, oh, this or or this is like, I love it all. But as a whole, when I listen to this record, I end up really feeling melancholy. So when it's over, I'm just not in like, it, it's it's just a different feeling and it's not a bad feeling. But I will say, like, I prefer the feeling that I get when I listen to, like, Fellini days. And, like, for me, and we'll talk about it in Weltschmerz, the thing that, I, that I'm that i so relieved about Weltschmerz is that he is very dynamic in mood throughout that whole record. But I, I feel I have general, like, great feelings about that when I'm, when I'm done listening. So the way I'll make the comparison, I don't really mean to make it in any other way, shape, or form, but, like, mood and how I feel after I listen to it reminds me a bit of clutching at straws. I know people like think, you know, that's the greatest Marillion album. I know like, I think you guys had it ranked at the top of your list. And for me, it just can't ever be that way because I just, the way I feel when I'm done listening to it, just, and and it makes me not want to listen to it as much. So for, for me, I'm, I'm a little conflicted about the record because I love it, especially doing a deep dive and really understanding all the things that he went through and where all this comes from, it makes it such an enjoyable listen, but the mood of it is, is I guess at the end of the day, a wee bit off putting and sometimes like stops me from putting it in on just a regular day to listen. I've always been attracted to darker albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've always been attracted to, you know, darker subject matter, the dark arts. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I think that's consistent with, you know, things, that we've talked about yeah. in the past. I think that it is different than you and I do have uh, different feelings when this, the album ends, because as I mentioned in my uh, text last night, I mean, I couldn't go to sleep after I, I, I put yeah. it on at like midnight Yeah, and I was just, my, my heart was like racing and I'm like, I was listening to it in, the, in, in my studio. So I had the doors closed. So I was able to really, crank it and i'm just like oh my god that sound that nylon string sound sounds so good and then but then there's just certain parts of this album when they kick in i just get goosebumps and i'm just like oh my god this is as good as it gets and yeah i'm just such so in awe at certain points the highs on this album are so high that even though we're talking about death and things like that i'm just seeing the beauty in the in the darkness and um i think that's just 
my you know personal the things that we've been talking about since we were you know junior high school yeah. you know i'm I mean, just he, like i'm just more more um apt to, to like the some of the darker stuff so i guess that makes sense yeah he he manages the uh, manages isn't really the right way but the, the content masterfully mm. and, and i was i was sitting here thinking about that as you guys were talking right and i was i was drawn as i was ruminating in my own head to exactly what you guys were talking about. Fish is able to present this subject matter in such a way. And, and World War One and World War II, you know, are sort of viewed historically very differently. But, I mean, they were both, you know, horrific in their, their own particular ways. And Fish had an immediate reason for this connection. He stayed there you know, in the middle of this, found out both his grandfathers were involved in this same area. Presumably you start, you know, looking into that history. It's not going to take a whole lot to understand. And I think what Fish is able to convey in the, the Highwood suite is an appropriate sense of the courage, fear, and sacrifice without necessarily... He's able to compliment the valor without commenting on the cause, if you will. And, and I was contrasting that with dear friend Roger Waters and when he would present views of World War II, for instance, in respect to his father. And there was, as is often the case with Roger, there's always that sort of, that little bit of vitriol that gets thrown in there. And that, that residual anger that doesn't go away, that, for me, never lets me fully immerse in it. And, you know, I understand people can have different views of war, and it's it's horrible, and it's, it's horrific. But, you know, for whatever reason, Fish decides to not go into that and just deal, you know, with the... F presumably the facts and his connection to this. And I respect that. I respond to that. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, this is, this is an interesting album. Shall we get into it then? Let's do yes. It. So we open up with, with Perfume River. We get some bagpipey sounds out in the front, some quiet music. And all I can think of is... Is this brave or come talk to me? <laughs> it, which is a weird thought to have when listening to a fish record, but there it is. And, you know, here again, fish keeps up his string now of opening his records with these long, sprawling pieces, which I like. It's cool, but, it, you know, it... it it has got to be a, a conscious decision at this point to put tracks like this to open this, these albums. And it's almost like it's a, a warm-up lap around the track, but it, it, I guess it gets you sort of where you need to go, but it, I'm just not connecting with it. And, and I keep having these, I personally am having these weird inputs so with the with the bagpipey beginning, I'm already thinking like that. But there's there's a section middle two thirds of the way through before it starts to pick up. 
And it feels like this is what would have happened if fish had been in Marillion for this strange engine or radiation. And mm. it's just, I'm having trouble, you know, taking all this in and, and processing it. And then I get really distracted when the big part kicks in and the Perfume River chorus, all I can think of now is Paradise City. <laughs> and I'm just like, and, and so, you know, I, if 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 I'm on a crusade to shorten this album by 15 minutes, this was one of the ones that's going to go. And not that it's bad. It's just I never really lose myself in it the way I do some of the rest of this record. Wow. I need more of this record. I, I, I need another an extra 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> a perfume River? Really? You know, I... Just in general, and I don't want to go on a total tangent here, but I don't understand why people say that a lot. I know that's also, um, that's been a criticism of like the last two Iron Maiden records where they're saying, oh, it's a little long. It's like, well, it's all good. If you just want to stop listening, you just turn it off and then you go go back to it. You know, it's like a, one of our episodes of a, a podcast, you know, it's like it could be <laughs> It's like long. episode 100. Who's going to listen to four and a half hours of us at once? <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, when you when you get tired of it and you you're in your car and you get to the place you need to be, you, you turn off your your car. If you're just if you need to make a sandwich, you turn off your CD player and you, you come back later. But anyway, um, to me, um, I, I absolutely love this song. I mean, this was when I heard this song, I was like, "This is it. This is the Fish album I've been waiting for," <laughs> and I love. The build, it builds and builds and builds. Every bit of this, the song is, is a build. And the, you know, the big payoff at the end uh, with the big chorus, I love. I mean, I don't, I don't I'm not really seeing the, the Guns N' Roses that, that you see. I'm hearing a, like a, a solid, like a, a very innovative a fish song. And I, I just, I think that the eclectic nature of, the, of this song is a very ballsy way to start and where you have, and this is very difficult to do. Apparently it didn't do it for you, Joe, but I mean, I think it's very difficult to do a longer song uh, to start off an album with a longer song and to give also enough of a hook and enough of a hook to sort of keep you going. And I, I think this is actually, it's hard to say what, well, I do have a, a favorite song on here, but I mean, this is actually close to one of my favorite songs. Actually, I, I, I really love how this introduces this album. There have been times where I just wanted to listen to a song and I was like in the bathroom shaving and I would actually bring my, my phone into the bathroom and just play the song and, and just sort of it would just get me into, I don't know, this place you need to get to when you're shaving. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's so I, I, I just really, there have been times where I just really want to listen to the song. And, and I get that. And, and honestly, Perfume River is probably a song I liked more early on, but I will challenge you. And, and you have to go back and, and listen to Fish sing it. But take me away to the Perfume River. Carry me down to the Perfume River. Set me adrift on a well-stocked open boat. Show me the way down to the Perfume River. Send me away down the Perfume River. 
You're going to hear, take me down to Paradise City. You're going to hear it. It is there. The, the, oh. the cadence of that and the way Fish delivers it is just too close for my ear. I hope I don't. Because, uh, <laughs> I hope you yeah. don't either. Because I, I absolutely despise Guns N' Roses. So I, I, I hope you didn't ruin this song for me, Joe. You, you well, may be uh, getting a phone call from me at <laughs> 2 in the morning. Cylon time. Perfect timing. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> About Ball. 70 minutes, 70 minutes in. Yeah, so I think it's a fair call out completely, Joe, that that it's funny because I never put that together, but I knew something was off a little bit about that. And then I and then because I never put it together, I just kind of got used to it and, and didn't um and didn't bother. I, I'm I'm with Tom on this one. I I love Fish starting all these albums off with these long meandering songs. And uh, Perfume River is is by no means an exception. I I I I love how it starts with the whole. You're funny. It's it's really funny, Joe, because right with the bagpipes in the beginning, it really does have that sort of talk to me and brave kind of of sense. But but like I mean, then there is a lot going on in this song lyrically, and I'm I'm not going to pretend to you know to be extremely intimate with the lyrics. But but what I love about it is like and and the story right like as he approached this album, he where he was in Vietnam, he was in Costa Rica. He was in France on, in the World War One battleground, right? And like those were the those were big things that that inspired this. And Perfume River was a boat ride that he took down this river in Vietnam, and he looked at the citadel, and it was like still in rubble from the Vietnam War. And to me, just the the basic sentiment about like he just like closes his eyes and and just you know allows himself to take in what's there. But at the same time, he doesn't want to really know the the gory details, right, about the bullets in the wall of the building and all that stuff, right? And, like, to me, it's such a great introduction because it's such an honest, especially because, you know, he was pretty angry about, you know, he called out Vietnam a couple times earlier and in, in when he was with Marillion and, and it was angry. It's such a great, like, a mature, vulnerable look at, at, at that whole situation. And it's like the predecessor to all of these songs that like really explore the deep details of the truth you know there's some environmental stuff going on in the record the whole world war one thing like he really digs deep mm -hmm. and really gets into the subject matter so i think it's such a great thematic opening overall and i, I had to laugh because tom in one of our earlier uh reviews ken was being less than flattering to fish about the, these long opening songs that basically are E minor for like eight minutes. And like when I put this on, like right after we had that palaver and the, the whole meandering beginning and the first chord is the E minor. And I, I just like, ah, perfect, you know, <laughs> but it, to me, it just really works. It's, it really, it's, I think it's powerful and it, I like all the places that, it, that it goes to. And now I'll never be able to get, Paradise City out of my head when I listen to it. <laughs> I'm such a bastard. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Tom's still Cylon. So I guess, Tom, you can hold your rebuttal for a few moments. We can probably cover All Loved Up. And if we have to go back and, and cover your rebuttal, we can do that. So the, the second track, and, and again, Tom, I think to your point, we'll, we'll cover the, the CD and Spotify track listing. And so the second track that we have 
is is all loved up. Tom, you called this song out weeks ago when we first even started talking around this record. You said this album's the best, but this song is absolutely shit. And you said it if and I'll paraphrase here, but I seem to recall you calling it out musically, lyrically, and I'm not going to refute any of that. And it's it's very interesting. I don't know where this song came from. You said at the top of the sh- of the episode that it's on the wrong album. Yeah, it's on a fish album. That's the problem that we have. <laughs> it needs to be somewhere else. I don't want this anywhere near my fish experience. I can't even I mean if I would if it had to go on another album, I'd put it on Field of Crows so I could ignore it entirely. But even the stuff on Field of Crows that I don't like, I like much better than this. I just I, and and it's so weird to have such if I'm being mean, I will say such a stinker of a song on the front part of the album. If I'm being generous, I will say such an incongruous song on the front of the album. But given where you're going to go on the rest of this record, having this at number two is very questionable. And, and you know, when you talk about it, is it better at the end? Well, probably because you can turn the record off at that point. But I don't think it would play any better at the end than it does up front. It just, yeah. it, it, it puts one in danger of saying, why am I bothering for the next, you know, 45 minutes of this record? And that's, that's the problem. I totally agree with you, Joe. The only better location for this record is not to be on it at all. And especially after what you just, if, you know, if you get through the 11 minutes <laughs> of Perfume River and... You're like, okay, another long track in E minor. That was cool. I wonder what's next. And you hear this. I mean, it almost makes me like Big Wedge, this song. <laughs> and damning with, or yeah, damning with, with faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's, it's, it's just, and it, 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 I mean, you said it. Where you just came from and where you're about to go, it's like, what what is this? This is this is not. The only thing I'll say is that lyrically, you know, this is this was released in 2013, maybe one of the early social media revolt songs. It's still lyrically, it's ridiculously relevant, even now in 2021, perhaps even more so. It, it's ridiculously relevant, but I I don't think that. These are particularly good fish lyrics, even. I would agree. I would agree. There's a little bit of homage to Incommunicado somehow. I don't know. I do get that sometimes when I listen to this. Uh, am I uh, you're back. Cylon free? You're, no, you're good. Good. Yeah, guys, I mean, I love this album so much. It, it really breaks my heart. <laughs> to even talk about the song. I just don't understand why it's on this album. I, I was talking about Suits, how, you know, there was dark material and they were sort of put into some bouncy shells. Mm-hmm. Um, at least on this album, there's like one song that you can just completely take out. It's You can't really take one out of Suits because they're sort of like, 
mixed and matched with you know yeah in, in like different uh, beats and and tonalities and things. But you know, I, I just I don't know what he was thinking putting this song on. And the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because I just absolutely love this album, and it has an overall feel and tone and texture throughout. When we talked about Rain Gods with Zippos, one of our comments, all of us, we had the same sort of comments throughout that before you get into that suite, then there's all sorts of tempos and styles that are um, on it. Now, they're good, and I, I actually like those sort of ups and downs, but it's not really the most focused of, of, of albums per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is to the T minus all of that. Um, it really is an emotional place that you start and, and finish. And just with the orchestration, um, the, the production with the acoustics and, and, and all, I mean, it's like horn sections and it's just such a beautiful album and it's done so well, I just don't understand why this song is in here. Although it's a disappointment, I I don't let it take me out of where I need to be because everything else is so good. You know, I I will say that I do agree with the subject matter and it is relevant, certainly. And I don't even mind the lyrics. It's just, I just don't ever want to hear the song. You know, I'll, Forgive him, as we will soon talk about the the genius of this album. I don't think we've had a a reaction this universally negative since Big Wedge. <laughs> well, there yeah. you go. I think if we were going to rank the worst fish songs, this one would fall below Big Wedge. I, I think it would definitely <laughs> fall below Big Wedge. <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't want to go off topic, but I, and especially in a negative way, I don't, I don't really agree with Fish having his last tour of front to back vigil with thrown in his a couple songs from his last album. I mean, does he really think people want to hear Big Wedge? I mean, you know, <laughs> like, does uh, okay, but. I, I, I don't want to go negative because I, I love this album, but it's just very strange. It's very strange. <laughs> we should make a playlist of, of a feast of consequences and every other song should be the big wedge oh, put God. in there just to see how it works out. Okay. So all loved up actually probably got more airtime than it really deserves. For sure. Given the fact that literally I have one line in my notes and it says, this is not great. <laughs> So blind. I got to let the dog out. (laughs) (laughs) Blind to the beautiful. I'm curious how you guys feel about this. I had the impression I went back and checked and it's actually not reality. But I sort of had this impression from the last few fish albums that we did that he opens up with a long meandering song. Then he has some sort of up-tempo number and track three is always this sort of slow sort of ballady type thing it, yeah it, it that's the feeling i get when i went back and looked at 13 star and field of crows it's not actually necessarily as prevalent as i would have thought but it still feels very it it feels worn out to to go here oh 
I I love them, and I'm I'm kind of torn here because I, and I don't know if it's the impact of all loved up. I like the music. I think it's beautiful, and it's interesting. I was reading a little few things online today, and it talks about how, you know, the band on this record is essentially the same band that recorded Thirteen Star, but they're whereas Thirteen Star was was very sort of heavy and distorted in in terms of the guitars. There's a just a wealth of acoustic here that sounds beautiful. The problem that I have here, and 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 I don't know if it's that I'm I'm geared up for the rest of the record, but I don't connect to these lyrics at all. I love the idea of blind to the beautiful. I think that's a, a great title. The lyrics in the song just, I've got nothing. It's really weird. So I, I struggle with this song a little bit. Oh, man. Oh. I don't know that this song is Fish's best lyrics, um, but I love the song. I, I love the, just sort of the stripped down. I love the fact that it never like explodes into some, yeah. you know, ballady sort of thing. And I, I love the verse. Like, I don't know if it's G and D minor, but. I just love the melody. So, yeah, I and I and, and like I said, I don't know. I agree with you, Joe. I don't know that it's the best fish lyrics. I do like the sentiment behind it. And I think the song is awesome. I absolutely love the song. I'm always a sucker for Fish's voice when he's singing with female singers. It's just such a nice texture. There's not a lot of it on this song. It's, it's mostly put in at the end. But oh, when the, the female vocals come in, it's so beautiful. It's, it's a sad song. And I, I've always loved this song. I, I, I think it's a beautiful production. It's one of those songs that I agree with you, Paul. I, I'm glad it doesn't go to another level because it, it doesn't need to. And it's just, it's a simple uh, melody. I think that it works really well. And it's not overproduced. I mean, maybe as I'm getting older, I'm just becoming more patient with like environmental lyrics or whatever. But yeah, it's it's, it's toned back, fish. I mean, it's not like he's not using the crazy metaphors and yeah. and whatnot. But I think there's a place for that. You know, it's just it's a it's it, just a, a sad place to connect. Yeah, and it's it's similar to. It's similar to what we were talking about, the way he handles the subject matter of of the World War One stuff. Uh, he, I, I think it's similar, somewhat of a straightforward, but fairly sensitive, less angry, you know, environmental thing, right? I, I dig it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Two for three so far. By the way, um, incidentally, throughout part of this episode, I have, in fact, purchased the remastered 90 page version of Fellini days. And it cost me about $40 us Tom. So. Wow. Okay. okay. Oh, Fellini days. So now, now I have all the fish I want. I can't believe we're, we talk it that way about Fellini days. So from there, we move on to the title track, a feast of consequences. Now I think this song is great. It's got a little bit of grit to it, you know, and I like the way it comes in. I think these lyrics are, this is the first time on this record 
where Fish's words really sort of, you know, flip my switch a little bit. And I get, I get really excited about it. There was something so deeply flawed in the beginning we tried to deny it, like a crack in a china doll, a masquerade in silence, where we try to recognize just exactly who we're trying to hide. We played out our roles in this grand design, fooled ourselves in our own disguises. Ooh, I like that. Yes, please. Give me a little bit more mm. of that. When the song picks up at the end, it, it has sort of a an unfish-like feel to it musically, but it's not enough to, to really, you know, impact me. I just like, oh, that's kind of odd, but I'm still really enjoying myself and I kind of like where it goes. And I like, there's something about when he sings Feast of Consequences that just kind of grabs me. I like the way that's delivered. I like the way it comes out. And I absolutely love at the very end of the song when he he sings for the last time, can't walk away from this Feast of Consequences. And then he says at the end, looks like I'm dining alone. And it's just like, oh, I just... I love the way that that whole thing sort of resolves itself. You know, the crazy thing I I think about this song, for some reason, it reminds me of Bob Mould's workbook, the production. Bob Mould. Maybe that's what I'm picking up on. Yeah. It's like the acoustic with the electric. Yeah, it's so great. I think I've mentioned this before. Like, so part of this DVD in this in this uh, remastered set has some live performances videos and it's it's nothing like it's not like a a um produced video right it's like a camera like stuck over the soundboard and it's just kind of funny because fish is this large foreboding character and he's always wearing a big long scarf and he's surrounded by monitors and he's got tiny little black music stand like you know like the one i have over there and you know he's kind of like like many musicians like who are i wouldn't necessarily say like i would say like local guys in the area who do stuff and they put, put music stands on you know as the night goes on it just slowly becomes them singing to their music stand as they you know get deep into you know reading the lyrics and there's almost like that effect while he's doing this and i'm thinking ah like i totally get it there's so many words to so many of these songs like there's no fucking way I could ever remember them. But like this song is so great and it's it's jamming and and the the rhythm of the you know the the feast of consequences chorus, if you will. And he's just like singing it <laughs> to the microphone stand. <laughs> it's, it's like a come on. Come on. But um the the dark, somber part of the lyrics are matched well by the upbeat music because the up, the music isn't happy. Like it's not, you know, it's not soundtrack dissonance. It fits nicely. Feast of Consequences has a chorus that we're not really used to hearing from Fish. It's like a style of a chorus that I don't really feel like I've heard a lot in other Fish albums. He really goes to a different place here than, than he has been. I really really love the chorus. Again, Fish puts a bit of a commercial tag into something textured and creative. And I, I think that's one of the staples of Fish. I hate using this term, but like a sing-along uh, chorus, but it's a sing-along chorus in a good way. There's nothing wrong with a hook. Right. This fits really nicely right before the Highwood Suite because 
we're going to go into like a, a darker place. And it's nice to be sort of brought up a little bit before we go into the World War One stuff. It's funny how we do tend to talk less sometimes about the songs we like compared to the songs we don't like. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's weird. Uh, actually, Paul, um, I have no notes for this song. So yeah. mo- moving then into the, you know, perhaps the, the, the centerpiece of A Feast of Consequences being the World War I-inspired Highwood Suite I, I would point out, Paul, are we still doing the, the show note thing? I forget where we landed on all of that. But I, yeah, I, I point it out because there is a, a post in the Fishheads forum that provides a very nice, concise historical background to this, this particular section of the record. And, you know, I mean... As I started to get into this and recognize it for what it was, you know, you, you start looking and, and the Highwood is is a place in the Battle of the Somme. Um, Crucifix Corner was an actual place. I sent you guys a picture just before we got on air. And, you know, Thistle Alley was, you know, the name of this this trench that his one grandfather had worked on that went up to, I believe, a it's a thistle cemetery is has something to do with it. But anyway, this, this, this page in the fish heads forum kind of just gives a a brief overview of, of all of this. But, but the fact of the matter is this stuff really happened and it happened in the summer of 1916. And anyone who is not necessarily familiar with, with world war one, you know, suffice it to say that World War One was just a horrific war in terms of the the way it was fought, the amount of damage that was done, the conditions under which the soldiers lived in these trenches for long periods, and it was a very static war. It was a lot of back and forth with, you know, not a whole lot happening other than people being injured and, and killed. So... There's there's a lot here, and I would just you know again point to that as a means of of getting a little context for for what fish is is talking about here as we go into this. But overall, you know, and 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 I I called you know the Highwood Suite the sort of centerpiece. I think it is. It, these songs are obviously connected. They're about different aspects of the area and the, the battle. And, you know, I, I think it's exceptionally well done. I think you sort of get some of the emotional impact. And there are different types of emotion throughout all of this. I, I think overall it's, it's, it's very dramatic. And we'll cover these, obviously, you know, track by track. Highwood opens up the suite. And it, it opens up with this divine piano, and then you have the fretless bass coming in underneath it. And then when Fish comes in, he just, he sounds cool. Like his delivery is is grabbing. It's, it's attention-getting. You're like, ooh, okay, I like this. And, and you can almost be lulled into not realizing what you're learning about here, but it's, uh, it's something. 
when I think of string sections, successful string sections in rock, whether it's rock or prog or anything else, this is as good as it gets. It's great how heavy, and in, in, you also get this in um, Thistle Alley, but how heavy a string section can make a song, even in my opinion, uh, more than even you know distorted guitars. An orchestra is such a powerful thing. And um, when the drums kick in and the string section and the, and the guitars kick in, I just lose my mind. I'm just like, this is amazing. I I'm just so happy when I I'm hearing the song. This is my favorite song on the album. And it's just absolutely perfect. This is just like one of those moments that when you, when, when I heard the song, I was like, this is it. This is, this is why I, I love this artist. And this is just the perfect way that I like to hear things. Mm -hmm. And my, my only beef with the song is that it sort of ends a little prematurely. It could have feathered itself off a little bit rather than, you know, the, the abrupt ending. But I, I, I really uh, think it's a great idea with this with the suite it's a different kind of a suite that was on zippos uh it's not like it doesn't really feel like a concept album it, i, I yeah. think this is just straight up like five songs that have similar content uh lyrically and they all a lot of them have the string section and, and, and uh, of course the leaving which is the last one sort of goes back to the original melody of of highwood and and there's also besides the melody sort of brings back that chord progression. So it's weird because it sort of has your, uh, some criteria of like the concept album criteria, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it. Actually, I listened to this, you know, for a while and I, I didn't know it was part of a, a suite. So like, he's not doing the same thing that he did on, on prior albums and, and you're sort of given something new. But with the string section and the acoustics and the electronica, it's just such uh, a style it's a style that I, I love to hear when you have that acoustic sound with you know like heavier drums and uh, there's there's just uh, it's almost it, it reminds me of Zeppelin at, at times with, yes. um, when it when it kicks in and um, and also uh, Alley is as well and sort of has that Zeppelin feel you know, I know this is sacrilege in the world of rock. I, 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 this is, to, to me, like uh, better than what Zeppelin does to me, because this is the way that I particularly love to hear music. I mean, this is as good as Fish gets. I mean, this is just wonderful. Yeah. You know, you know it's, it's funny, Tom. One of the things we've talked about with the last couple of albums is how Fish doesn't even appear on the timeline of progressive rock, as if we're not categorizing that particular album as progressive. And I, I feel like there's always been those neo-progressive elements to his music. And I don't know if he, like when you read, you know, what he writes about these, when you, you know, listen to the interviews that he gives on the DVD, it's not like he's running away from it, but it seems he acknowledges it, but it's not like it's, it's not like it's a point. Like he's not trying to be like, okay, I'm going to make, make this, you know, a progressive thing. And I feel like, I'm the same. Like, I don't know that I knew this was a suite until even after reading the 100-page booklet. Like, 
it the way they introduced this section of the DVD was as a suite. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right. Because obviously, thematically, they're all connected. And when you read the 100 page booklet, you get that. But it's not like encapsulated in like one progressive, like it's not like, you know, side one of an album or something like that. So, and I think even on the vinyl, it's chopped up, right? You, you actually is, have to yeah. get up. You have to get up in the middle of it and flip the record, which I couldn't imagine doing. The only thing I was going to add is like, I think that especially at the beginning, I, I, in the interview fish says, and I think this is right on. It's sort of like, it's like part progressive, but it's almost like this whole suite is almost like a musical of some sort, like the way that the songs are, are delivered. I mean, they're telling the story and and that's the sense I get listening to like the beginning part with the beautiful piano and then the strings come in and you know the way he's sort of unfolding everything it's it's almost like a uh, a rock musical and I like it. But it is it is um, like a rock musical and what's interesting, you know, sometimes with really heavy songs, it's not always about how high you're singing or how, uh, how distorted the, the guitar is, or, you know, all these sort of typical things that are associated with a heavy song. When this kicks in, I mean, this is sort of in that hard rock era where it's like, this is very heavy and he's holding back. He's sort of doing the fish thing. He's not like completely going, you know, high pitch crazy um, the guitars aren't necessarily wailing or a- any particular instrument isn't isn't going. But when the, the string section, it's so well done what they did with, with the string section here. And I mean, to have, you're talking about war and then to have a section like this, you're really feeling the pain that, you know, I think he wants you to feel. And yeah. I think that there is just the right dynamic here. And, and when you're really hearing the specific instruments all come together in just like the right way, this is every bit as heavy as like a, you know, heavy metal or hard rock thing. To me, this is like a heavy metal intensity without a lot of the instrumentation. And, um, and it, it's just the right feel of where I think you, you need to be emotionally. And it's just wonderful. Not to rain on this love parade that we have going on here. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. There is one aspect of this song that I don't really respond to. And that is, and, and, and Tom, you've called it out and rightfully so, you know, fish generally speaking, I think makes excellent use of female voices in his music. But when we get into what I guess you would call the chorus, the wood will rise, the wood will fall, the circle is unbroken. Um, The wounds will heal in rings of time, the circle is unbroken. It it sounds, and this is, I guess this is where the musical part comes in, because it sounds like there should be a, a, you know, the full cast uh, chorus on stage singing some little, you know, whatever. And it just, I, I don't like that part of it. 
Oh, that's one of my favorite parts. I guess I'm the only person. Okay, fair enough. On tonight's I'm, I'm episode like, of Progressive Palaver, the part of Ken Gregory will be played by Joe Beauclair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm like completely splooging at that point. And, uh, really? I just, that he could have, it, it, sounds, I mean, it sounds so cartoony. Oh, so no. so I I think I can be some I can add some diplomacy to this. Yeah, I, I can hear where you're coming from, and from that, like sometimes like a, a rock musical is not a welcome concept, right? And and I think that that is one of the rock musical parts of of the song. Maybe it depends on how how willing you are to you know go to that. To that extent, so I, I I find personally that I that I like it, but I, I think I hear what you're saying, Joe, about about that that part. Well, I'll, I'll apologize in advance, Tom, because I think there's one more area in this suite that I'm going to. Well, there there are two more statements I have in in the course of of the next couple songs that are probably going to piss you off, but I'm not oh. doing it on purpose. I'm merely sharing my thoughts. Well, real quick, Joe. I mean, what do you think of I mean, we talked about the wall to no end. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff on the wall. I mean, did that bother you when, you know, people are chanting different things and, and all that, you know, the tear down the wall and the, and the, there's all sorts of different pieces that are, are going on with that. By the time you get into the trial, I mean, the trial is nothing but musical theater. It, it makes no pretense to be anything else. And and quite frankly, the chants of tear down the wall are they're presented in such a way to be that. I th I, I think this particular chorus and and it's just it just kind of comes out of almost nowhere for me, and it just doesn't seem to fit in everything else that I'm really really loving. But but maybe we can move on to Crucifix Corner, which is just. I think Crucifix Corner is sublime from top to bottom. It's, you know, for me, this is not that Highwood isn't powerful, but I think Crucifix Corner is more powerful, but it, in all of the same ways that you're talking about, Tom. You have outstanding lyrics. You have absolutely, um, you know, perfect music. You got this the balance between the the lyrics in the first and the last verses is absolutely sublime. I think Fish does everything right. Fish and the band, not just Fish himself, but the entire band does everything right in Crucifix Corner. And it I sounds like yep, you you took you took all the words right out of my mouth. Well, well as you were saying that, Joe, I I I, I shit you not. Know, as you were saying that. I happen to glance over at my notes for Highwood. Yeah. And I say, uh, favorite part, Wood Will Rise, Wood Will Fall. <laughs> and I'm going, how? I'm, I'm saying to myself, how the hell can this happen? <laughs> so I missed half the things you were saying about Crucifix Corner because I was still obsessing over that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, let me, let me, let me, um, let me give you something else to fixate on. And the one thing that I'm going to say that is probably going to set you off, and, and honest to goodness, this is my genuine feeling, and I'm not trying to troll you in any way, shape, or form. But there are a few moments in Crucifix Corner where I pick up a vibe very similar to what I think 
is a spectacular piece of music in the soul cages. <laughs> well, I'd, well, I'd buy I, that I for a dollar. Uh, I, I'm not going to comment on that because I mean, I, I just, I just, I, I don't hear that. Is Sting um, Scottish? Did we ever, did we, do we know that? Uh, I, don't know. I, I don't know, but I mean, already, I, so we're going. Cause there, there is to me, there is some, there is some like regional taste to this tune. And I think it, I I'm with you, Joe on soul cages. Um, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's a little bit, it's fleeting. It's not dramatic. It's not it's just, overwhelming, but it's ever present. Yes. So, so far we've compared it to He's guns English, and roses. By the way. Uh, English, uh, close enough. Compared this to Guns N' Roses <laughs> and Soul Cage. <laughs> I'm, just, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right. Sorry, gang. So, I mean, we could probably uh, compare it to Coil next, I guess. I mean, uh, Toad Wet Sprocket's Coil. I but, actually uh, have a Toad the Wet Sprocket note that I didn't bring up, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, you might as well. I mean, you... <laughs> Might as well, uh, you know, keep, just keep, not. But, but, but Tom, give me the keep KO. In, give me the KO knockout. But, but, but Tom, keep in mind, I love all of those things. So if I say you it sounds Guns and Roses, well, Guns and Roses, you hate I hate Guns and Roses. But, but if I say if I say I'm hearing flavors of the Soul Cages or Coil, for me that's a good thing. I know you don't interpret it that way, but it is. Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take issue um, artistically with your comments about soul cages or coil. I mean, I think those, you know, sort of have an artistic integrity, but I'm, I'm still bothered by the wood bull rise, wood bull fall more than that. I will agree that crucifix corner is, is sublime. It, it really is a blessing. What is interesting about this and especially now that we're into the suite. I was listening to an interview with Fish and how they, you know, went about writing and recording this. I guess after 13 Star, he he told the guys, the band and everyone that he was writing with, that he didn't want to see a computer. <laughs> and he wanted to write, and even he, he described the way that he would write with the guys in Marillion, which is they would just be in a room. One would have a guitar, another one would have a keyboard, and they would just hash things out and go over pieces, record those, and then, you know, he would go away and, and write lyrics, then come back and then flesh things out with the band. And that's, you know, sort of the old school way of doing things. Now, I know you get some great stuff when you do things with the computer and whatnot. There's certainly something to be said for that. But I, I think when... Now that I hear him talk about how they wrote a lot of these songs, it's a warm sounding record. And this is a very warm sounding record, mainly because you have just incredible acoustic sounds. You have like string sections. And again, you're, you're mixing the electronica with you know, some of the, the, the warmer tones, but you're really given the space with these longer songs and it makes sense that they sort of wrote things the way they did. And it makes me feel good that, you know, people are still writing like this <laughs> and yeah. they're coming up with stuff like this and they're, they're coming up with real deep, rich productions 
and and just great artistic songwriting. So uh, overall, and, and you know, this is I'm I'm still in the place where I I need to be when I when when I hear this song. Yeah, I I, I think it's a really important thing that you mentioned about the you know no computers just bring your your guitar or whatever because you know between 13th star and this album fish did a lot of the fish heads club touring which was just an acoustic format right and like he talks about that and that that's that's what inspired that right he was doing all of his his songs and rediscovering them in a broken down and stripped down version and brought him back to, you know, more of the the pieces of putting a song together, which I think he needed, frankly, in my opinion, after the last two albums. And I think it comes out in a lot of, of songs, but this one probably, you know, in particular. Since I love to read Fish lyrics, if I may read the first and last verse of this song. In the cornfields, speckled poppies grow in a twilight moving shadows. From the high wood the reaper walks, a harvest to be gathered. The skylark's solo fateful cry, the hares alert now scattered, the pheasants raised by beating drums in a field prepared for battle. And then you can contrast that to those who survived return to crucifix corner in the cornfields ripening corpses, sweet in a sunrise moving shadows, from the high wood, the reaper walked to a harvest duly gathered. The skylark's sol- solo mournful cry above spirits torn and tattered. In a new dawn, the whistle blows on a field prepared for battle. I just, I love the way he sort of balances out that before and after image. And he uses just enough of the same words to really maintain the structure, but the overall image conveyed is very very powerful to me. Hmm. I I I love it when you read fish lyrics. <laughs> Any excuse I can find, Tom. I also love the fact that he uses the term "whistle blows." The yes, because like he uses it in Shalantama, right? Yeah, I think so. Isn't that, so like he uses that. And there's a reference there to the ending of something, right? The whistle blows at the end of the workday. The whistle blows at mm-hmm. the end. So it's perfect that it is there. But in, in the context of World War One, the whistle blowing is one of the signals for the fighters to hop up over the trenches and run to their demise against the machine guns. And I just think it's just like... Yeah, it's got much more powerful. dire consequences now. Yeah, it's just such a deep idea and it's it's interesting the way you know that that fish goes about this and so when we move on to the gathering my world war one history is not really up to speed but if we think about a lot of this right and and this has popped up before with the imagery of the white feather that we had talked about and and all of that so presumably the gathering is going to guess it's you know rejuvenating all of the troops that were have already been lost in, you know, the fields of France. And so you've got to bring all these new people on board and you appeal to their patriotism. And I think he does a really, really great job of sort of painting that picture. You know, again, it's one of those things where you can, you can very clearly see and he's able to present this idea of 
you know, signing up and he talks about the idea of patriotism and nationalism and, and, you know, God's on our side and everything else. But he doesn't, he doesn't preach about it. He merely presents it. And you can presumably draw your own conclusions. This particular track has the last negative thing on this album that I'm going to say. And I'm going to guess, Tom, that you probably like it. <laughs> and, and that is, you know, the, the, the horn parts in here. And Oh, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> oh, I knew. Oh, the horns are so great. I, I don't I think like, they're great. Don't say the horns. I was like, oh my God, Joe, please don't say the horns. Please don't say the horns. Please don't say the horns. And you said the horns. That's, oh. that's it. That's the last the last thing I have to say. And it, they don't work for me, but I appreciate why they're there. And I also appreciate it. And it's it's sad. And Paul, you've got the, the actual booklet in front of you. I don't know if, if there are actual horn players credited or not, but we know from the stories around the, the previous few albums that, you know, when Fish was doing these 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 gigs for the, the troops in and around Europe, that, you know, he he became very good friends with a couple of these horn players and would bring them on because he liked working with them. And if if that's actually what happened here, if they're there and it's not just some sort of sampled keyboard thing, you know, it brings another level of genuineness to this that I really have to respect, even if I don't necessarily love it musically. So just for the record, my one note, my one note for this song, <laughs> my one note, these horns sound absolutely perfect. <laughs> That's my note. <laughs> and... Uh, I think that the horns work well in this because you, know, you sort of have this Barnum and Bailey thing going on and you don't really know where he's going with it. I have to say uh, that for me, the horns really took it to another level and it took me to the opposite place that it took you. That's weird, Joe. Normally you and I are in sync with things and I'm like, yeah, Ken and I are like polar <laughs> opposites. Yeah. Usually Ken will say the one thing. Well, that I mean, I, yeah, the other way. So I don't know. I think I think Paul do you, said sure you don't have Ken um, in like a headphone. He's like he's like talking to you in like a headphone or something. Um, but uh, at least you didn't say you liked all of the. But anyway, um, I, I I think this is a this is a, a great song, and it's it's sort of, it's not a song that sort of knocks you down with like a hook or anything. It just it's, it really gives you like a, a textured place in time. And, and you know, there's um, the use of these horns puts you in that time. And the way that they're utilized were sort of put in that period piece. And it's 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 a, it's a, I think it's a really good use of those. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, I think this I, I, I love the nationalist kind of approach that you brought out, Joe, because. Like, this is the most Scottish sounding song to me and the horns sort of for me temper that a little bit but they also you know to your point tom about the warmness of this album they always bring that warm quality you know to um to this and um incidentally yes so yes the trumpet was played by john sampson okay. the flugelhorn by finley hetherington trombone by fiona lund and tuba by stuart watson okay um, cool 
Good. Yeah. I don't know why they're not reflected on the wikis, but. Um, the other thing that's interesting too, is we brought, we, we talked about, um, big, big train having English electric two out in 2013 English electric one in 2012. They, they are, they prominently use horns in their Neo Prague based rock. So perhaps that's also just a sign of the times as well. Maybe, um, not sure, but, uh, but yeah, I, I I enjoy them here. I think they add a lot to the to the overall feel. That takes us on to Thistle Alley. Uh, you know, again, each part of this suite almost becomes more powerful than the next. And when I first started listening to this record, and you know, when when I approach you know a new record which I had never heard this before we were, we'd started the fish segment and I purchased a whole bunch from fish's website, this being one of them. And Tom, you had already been talking this, this record up. So I put it on and I'll just, I'll play through it a couple times without looking at anything. I'll just see what grabs me, right? Kind of let it hit me and see how I feel. And then I'll start sort of paying more attention. This track, you know, just sort of, working or whatever and ears perk up and i said to myself well this sounds like judas priest <laughs> <laughs> and 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 specifically and and you know obviously i'm not you know that familiar with judas priest but it reminded me definitely of aspects of nostradamus which we had listened to thanks to you for our 100th episode and and i say that in the sense that again this is this is a very, very aggressive, heavy song. And, and he's able, I think, to, you know, musically convey the subject matter in, in a way that, to your point, Tom, has, you know, the, the music and the lyrics are in fact aligned. There is no sonic dissonance here. And he's able to do it exceptionally well. And, you know, and again, when I say, when I invoke, you know, no, Nostradamus era Judas Priest. It's not. It's not a knock in any way, shape, or form. I think it's it's it, it's the right tone for this, and I really, really enjoy Thistle Alley. It's heavy with its intensity. Yeah, it's um, intense. It's Maybe that's the right not, word. Yeah, it doesn't give you the proverbial heavy metal things, but it just comes together, and you just. You want to clench your fists, you, your your heart's racing, and you're in that place that you need to be. There, there's something that the lead guitar does in this that kills me. It's only like halfway through. It almost brings in this like, almost like an Egyptian melody, like a lead. It's one thing that you know Fish albums don't have a lot of. The guitar is almost softer spoken. Yeah, it's so great to hear this done tastefully in the right spot when that lead melody comes in it's just sort of like floating in there and it's just sort of like almost demonic but it's beautiful i mean there's everything about these songs are beautiful and the tone is great guys you just said like the richest guitar tones here mixed with a warm organic instruments and it's uh, it really gives you a, just a, a, a warm and fuzzy 
Joe, did you want to read any lyrics from this song? Uh, I wasn't going to, but you're welcome to. Okay. So, like, whistles are blowing, the maxims are waiting to carve the flesh, shatter skulls, and crush the bone. Guns stuttering, relentless, rake the lines. The gas that whispers in the confines of the trenches to choke the life of those who dare to hide. Wow. That just kills me. I mean, that's just... Joe, you made mention of, I'm going to say dirge, Mm -hmm. but like the stagnation of battle, right, of World War I, right? And like, to me, like the plotting of this song, like the tempo and that, you know, Judas Priest-esque is like the perfect musical representation of that. It's great. Musically, it puts you in that space to really just imagine being there. It's, I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty magical. Yeah. And he's going to continue this. So moving on then to the next and and last portion of this suite, the leaving. In, In the beginning part of this song, you have the orchestration and the fretless bass creating like it literally feels like things are being pulled in opposite direction and your ears are like being pulled out of your head in in different ways it's to me i think it's so masterful the way that they're able to create these feelings with the music and it really is I, i just i find it stunning the way they're able to, to do that. And, you know, here again, the, the lyrics are phenomenal because it, it basically talks about the end of the war, but it, it doesn't stop at the end of the war. So if we look at the last half of this song, it had to end, the army's broken. One side had lost, but who had won? The ravaged land, the decimation, so hard to bear the loss and pain. The men returned, the war was over, the bells rang out, a country cheered. Behind their eyes they stored the horrors, behind their smiles they hid their fears. The medals and the honors were handed out to those who served, letters of condolences were kept, reminding generations of the sacrifices made, the suffering and the torment of the men most never knew, lest we forget. Now, of course, you know, I, I, I just, I love the fact that he, he keeps it real and, and talks about how, you know, the men of this generation, you know, basically, you know, as, as I understand it, and I'm not in any way, shape or form, you know, extremely versed in, again, World War I history. But at, at this point, the idea of, of you know, PTSD hadn't really been fully understood. And I believe it was called shell shock. But a lot of these, these returning soldiers just packed it up and, and tried to, to move on. And, and that's, you know, that's a, a tremendous part of this, of this legacy that it's just called out in a little little bit, but the fact that it is called out, I think, is is important, and it's something you would expect from Fish. A nice way to bookend this, I think it was done tastefully because it's nice to have the repeating melody 
Uh, and also it gives you something new. It doesn't quite give you, it doesn't quite give you the highs and lows as some of the other ones, but it's done in a way where you're, you're, you don't feel like you're hearing the same thing. Yeah. You know, mainly because you're not, but the, I, I love high wood so much. I love the melody that I'm, I'm really you know, yearning really to hear it again. That's, that's why I guess we love concept albums so much is because sometimes we hear that, that, that melody from the, previous song that we wanted to hear and it sort of glues everything together and believing is sort of like the glue here and we really want to know more about these soldiers like the story's not over yet so at the very end of the leaving he capitulates the uh part of the gathering right so the gathering is that joyous song about you know mm-hmm. packing up and you know doing your your patriotic duty and and we say, I'll long for my home and family. I will long for the life I once knew. I will long for my youth and innocence. And I'll long for the brave new world. Farewell to our homes and families. Farewell to the lives we once knew. Farewell to our youth and innocence. And at the end of the leaving, he he recapitulates that farewell to our homes and families. Farewell to the lives we once knew. Farewell to our youth and our innocence. Farewell to, to a brave new world. I love that. And... The thing that's cool about, like, this is the end, right? Like, you know, he calls out the big parades and the celebrations, right? And, and the people back home. And that's what that's what you think of when you think of the end of World War One, World War Two, And I just think it's so masterful how he weaves in that sort of piece from the gathering, you know, where the soldiers are all gung-ho let's go and that even when they're coming back that recapitulation just strikes me that's all i just think it's it's a it's pretty epic way to just kind of end this whole suite the whole thing's you know very very moving there aren't i think growing up when we grew up there was a lot of emphasis just generally on world war ii it was more immediate it it helped to you know create the world that we grew up in. But, you know, the, the sad moral of the story for World War I is for all of that decimation and destruction, it ended in such a way that it created, you know, the circumstances for World War II. And, and that's, that's the really sad part. But it's not something that is it's not a subject matter that we are often shown um, or at least did not come up in the music that we listened to certainly growing up but I think Fish you know it, it's one of those you wonder if he hadn't known this this battlefield guide if he had not spent his his birthday in this area you know would he have been inspired and would he have written this and I'm glad that he did because I think it's it's exceptionally well done. It's very moving, and I just I think it's spectacular. But fish I, is not done. I'm sorry. I, sorry, I you know it's it's just funny. You got me thinking about that. Like I, I was going to say that part of the reason why I think we were exposed to World War II so much more than World War One is because our parents' generation either lived through it or. It was very, very close to them. Mm-hmm. I assume our parents were all born around the same the same time. I could be wrong about that, but 
you know, my dad was born in 36. Mm-hmm. My mom in the early 40s. I mean, they were literally like my, my dad was a schoolboy during World War II. So how could hit that generation fully comprehend or, or learn about World War One when all of that, when World War Two was literally happening all around him, them, or the, the boom following World War Two, you know, happening all around them and all that happened, it it just it does seem, in a sense, to be the lost, uh, somewhat lost on on our generation. I, maybe we were just World War Two fanatics. I don't know. But having taken us to the Somme in 1916, fish is not done. Thankfully so. And, I, you know, I would be happy if this album had, had finished on The Leaving, but I'm equally happy that there's more. So when I complained at the top of the episode about wanting to shave 15 minutes off this record, this is not where I would shave it off. We go into the other side of me. I just, I love this song. I think... You know, the acoustic guitar and the violin, I don't know if it's a violin or a keyboard, whatever the case may be. I think they're so smooth together. I think this is an instance where the backing vocals are just spot on. Absolutely love them here. And this whole concept is has honestly been rattling around in my brain for some time now. So the other side of me on the other side of you so when I read lyrics like that or I hear lyrics like that, you know, all I can think of is the whole idea is he hears somebody and he turns around. It's not you. Oh, it's the other side of me. But the other side of me on the other side of you suggests that you, the other person, has turned away and is going away. And on the other side of them, I see myself. It's just I, I've been just playing in this sort of mental you know, romper room for, for a little bit with, with those lyrics. And it just, it's a blast. I'm having a, a fun time. I will say also that, you know, on the last verse of this, you know, when the organ comes in, that organ apps is it's transcendent, right? It just lifts everything up. And it, it's so, I don't know if joyous is the right word, but I think it's, it's really remarkable the way that that sort of comes in and, and, transforms the the song a bit maybe maybe to your point joe about the length i think these two songs again can't say anything bad about them i think i think these two songs more than probably all all that else contribute to my melancholiness at the at the end of and it's more mood than anything else because yeah there are there are lots of words to to this one but um so it's it's really beautiful and it's really lush and I and I love the way it's laid out and 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 this may be good for the Ken Gregory version of listening to Prague where you just listen to one song over and over but I think this adds to my melancholy so I'm not going to say anything bad about it but I think that these last two tracks sort of contribute to that feel that that sort of fatigue that I have when I when I listen to this record. Interesting, mucho. If I would have listened to these songs before the suite. I get this a lot when I listen to when, when I listen to songs from the wall and I'm not listening to the, the, the whole album. I hear songs in a different way. And because listening to the wall, you do still have 
some fatigue that goes on when you're listening from start to finish. On this album, you also have a certain fatigue. And the, the Great Unraveling is, these are both great songs, but especially The Great Unraveling has so many beautiful things going on. And the texture of that is, is so rich that sometimes I don't always catch things when I listen to these songs. I almost want to, you know, flip things around a little bit, you know, and, and listen, maybe listen to these songs in the beginning mm. or just, you know, out of, you know, out of context and just listen to them singularly because you, you do appreciate things in a different way when you're listening to something as heavy as this with a heavy subject matter. And I think no matter how long you think this album should be or how short it should be, there's always going to be uh, a fatigue that'll, that'll, that'll kick in. And I, I think that uh, the great unraveling, sorry to skip ahead, Joe, but uh, for, for me, the great unraveling, it's almost a, a tragedy that it's at the end of this album, because um, no matter how much I, I love it, you know, sometimes I'm just not ready for it. And when you listen to this by itself, you really appreciate everything that's going on a little bit more. And, and I'm happy to move on to the great unraveling. I, one of the notes that I have here is that I think the great unraveling is just a fantastic fish song. It, it sort of, concentrates all the, the beautiful things about fish. You know, you talk about all the beautiful things that are going on. We all know that I'm a sucker for certain tricks. So the, the particular trick here, besides the fact that I just, I think this chorus itself is fantastic, but during the chorus, you basically have fish and the backup singer trading lines, and then they reverse their roles for the second time they do it. It, it's it's a simple, obvious gimmick, but it just makes me all bubbly inside because it sounds cool no matter who's doing which part. And you get to experience both of that in the song and you're like, oh, awesome, thanks. That's a great point. You know what, I'll, I'll be honest, Joe, I never noticed that. So <laughs> that almost proves my, what I was saying before, that you don't notice certain things because you're, um, you have a little bit of a teak. So I'm actually, as soon as we finish this, I'm going to listen to that. So I can <laughs> really, really take note. All right. I think we've reached the end of the record, gentlemen. Uh, again, when I first started with A Feast of Consequences, I wasn't as overwhelmed as I was, I was feeling I should be. But as I got, you know, it's one of those things. Some, some of these albums, you know, they just take a little bit of time and effort in order to sort of get in there and understand and, and figure out where you are. And once you do, it's, it's a joy. And there have been, quite frankly, a lot of these in this fish catalog. I mean, you know, a feast of consequences with, you know, Fellini days and field of crows and 13 star. They were, these were not records with which I was intimately familiar. Uh, even Rain Gods with Zippos, I wasn't as intimately familiar. So getting to discover these is fantastic. I think, I don't remember if it was at the top of the episode or in the pre-show, but Paul, you had made some mention of the fact that 
you know, we're planning to do a, a fish force ranking episode because I think for most of us here on the Palaver, this catalog and this segment on fish has been so unexpected. And the things that we've discovered, and I almost wish we would have ranked them before we started to see how different they were. But, you know, it was, uh, it, it's really been a joy. And I think, you know, this is, you know, when we talk about some of the lore around this and, and you know, Fish having his, his throat issues and the album, you know, being in doubt as to whether it could be made, you know, it's one of those things where you're, you're thankful that it did get made and, yeah. and, you know, I can't wait to, uh, to finish up and we'll talk about Velchmerts and, you know, we've got some other sort of ancillary fish things that we need to, to finish up in order to, you know, complete this out. But this has been, like I said, really, really illuminating going through this catalog. And I'm so glad that we did the entire thing because we've discovered some great stuff. So, Tom, I'm glad that you were able to be here to advocate for your favorite fish album. I think this was this was great, and um, look forward to finishing out the the official catalog strong next episode. As am I. This was this was fun, guys. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week for Velchmertz. you've enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we look forward to your thoughts comments feedback and questions you can reach us on facebook instagram or twitter we are at prog paula on all of those or search for progressive palaver you're welcome to email us our email address is prog paula that's p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. First person, singular, me, myself, I, first person, singular, no fears left to cry. Actually, I'm smiling deep inside, first person, singular. You're still silent, Tom. Keep going. It sounds great. He sounds normal to me. I, I'm just kidding. I oh, want okay. to see how far we can get. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>